So many people might say that there's no such thing as a dumb idea, right? That's what we're going to work on today. Some people would say that, some people wouldn't. Um, I guess you feel how you feel about that depends a little bit about your definition of what a dumb idea is. So today we're going to take a look at a few dumb ideas, all right? Uh, like somebody coming up with the children's book about poop. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody know what book I'm talking about? Everybody. Okay. Everybody poops, right? <laughs> or another crazy idea. This is mine. Uh, benching Clayton Kershaw in order to win a World Series. We're going to talk a little Dodger baseball today. Um, really, really dumb idea. Or how about this one? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, suffering and dying is a pathway to life and salvation. How's that one sound? Right? This is what we're going to talk about today. So do we really, really believe that there's no such thing as a dumb idea? We'll find out. Let's pray. God, open up our hearts. Open up our minds by the power of your spirit as we read your scriptures, as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear what it is that you would say to us with joy today. Amen. 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 All right, so picture yourself sitting around a table with a group of aspiring writers. Everyone is sharing their brilliant ideas for their first book, and somebody throws out the idea to write the book called Everybody Poops. Right? <laughs> Dumb idea? Not really. That book has been like on the bestseller list for years. It even inspired other great books, like The Gas We Pass. Anyone on that one? No? No one? Seriously? Okay. Now, we read this book with our kids. Raise your hand if you've read this book before, if you know the book. Okay, a bunch of people. Like, we just pulled it out this summer, and our kids are almost 20, right? <laughs> we read it this summer. I'm serious. Did, we really did. Um, Jesus is going to throw out this really dumb idea, this idea of redemptive suffering. And Peter and the disciples are going to hear Jesus' idea, and they're going to say, this is the dumbest idea ever put forth. This is what we're going to be listening to right now. Mark 8, 27 to 38. It goes like this. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered in John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And here we go. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on, after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. So, so far in Mark's gospel, nobody gets Jesus right. 
the disciples, the crowds, the religious leaders, their behavior kind of ranges from simple misunderstanding from some of them to outright opposition from others. Faithful responses to Jesus have been almost non-existent so far in Mark's gospel. And where there has been some faithfulness, the surprising thing is who it's come from. It's come from outsiders. It's come from the wrong kinds of people. So the people that we've seen get Jesus a little bit, uh, there was an unclean woman, last week's Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile deaf mute. These are the people that aren't supposed to understand who Jesus is. And yet so far in Mark's gospel, which we've been in for a while, they're the only ones that seem to actually really understand who Jesus really is. And so no human in Mark's gospel actually gets his identity perfectly correct until this passage. This is the first time we see it. And strangely, Jesus chooses this moment at Caesarea Philippi to ask this really direct question. The question is, why here? Why now? Why does this question get asked right here? So a few things to note. Caesarea Philippi is uh, kind of on the northernmost border of Israel. It's literally like on the boundary between Israel and the rest of the world. This is the way they would have seen this city. It was a city given uh, to Herod the Great by the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. Then Herod's son Philip rebuilds it, changes its name to Caesarea, honoring Caesar, and Philippi honoring himself. Okay? And so the city was this home of tons of temples to the gods. There's a major temple for the Syrian god Baal. There's the Greek half-goat, half-man god named Pan. There was also the temple, you know, the emperor worship of Caesar Augustus himself. All these things are taking place in the city. Jesus brings his disciples there, probably to have this direct comparison between, do you guys really know who I am, in comparison to all the other things that are going on around us. So the disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time, and it's this moment that Jesus kind of pops this huge question. What does the world think about me? What does the world say that I am, right? And so let's look at the world's opinion about Jesus. It's actually really solid, right? We have John the Baptist, pretty good. Elijah, one of the prophets like Moses, it's like baseball terms, right? Three first like ballot hall of famers for sure. Um, this is a great comparison. Great comparison. Like I would argue that, uh, you know, like even today, the world shares a surprisingly high opinion of Jesus. You know who they don't share that high of an opinion of? Jesus' followers, right? When you talk to people about Jesus, a lot of people have a high view of Jesus, but they don't have such a high view about the church and they're not so crazy about Jesus' followers, right? And so the problem with the view of the world then of Jesus, and even the view of the world today of Jesus, which is pretty high, is that according to the Gospels, it's not high enough. It's just not high enough. Jesus isn't just a great guy, a wonderful teacher. He's not even just a prophet. Um, but fortunately, his identity isn't tied to his standing in the polls, Right? When we look at the Gospels, what we see is that each individual person has to make a decision for themselves about who Jesus really is. And so this is where things get more serious and they get a lot more personal. Jesus says, okay, great. That's what other people think about me, but who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? And so the question is, of course, designed to move the disciples from this passive recipient into an active participant, Right? They're being asked to get off the sidelines and get into the game. And so this is the central question of the gospel narrative. Who do you say that I am? Peter's response is the high point in Mark's gospel. Peter says, 
you are the Messiah. So we know that Peter is giving the correct answer. He gets that part right. But what we rarely talk about is why did he give this answer at all? This is one of the things that really interests me. We don't we ne- to see if anyone's ever talked about this before. Like, what makes Peter think that Jesus is the Messiah? I'm going to help you with some things, and then we're going to keep that question in mind. Messiah is a very specific word. It means to anoint. There's three classes of people in Israel, prophets, priests, and kings, that were anointed. It's the kings that most influenced the concept of Messiah in Judaism. And so we have the monarchy, the government, which is repeatedly failing over and over and over again. We have the expectation of the Jewish people, which was that God would raise up a new and even greater King David. So this is what they expect. But listen to the attributes and expectations of Messiah in the popular culture and then compare them to what you know about Jesus. Let's see if these things sound like Jesus to you. All right? First would be the perfect king chosen by God from eternity. All right, he's got that one covered. We're good with that one. What about would be holy and free from sin? I'm good with that one, right? That one sounds like Jesus, but how about these last three? Would destroy God's enemies. Does that sound like Jesus? Would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles. Anybody here last week? Jesus wasn't delivering Israel from the Gentiles. Jesus was welcoming the Gentiles. And finally, to restore Israel's supremacy. We have this political part of it, which we don't see any of those last three things. Like, and so you could, this is a great question. Like, did Peter really contemplate this list of expectations and then compare those things to Jesus and conclude that Jesus was going to be this kind of political military king? Don't you find that to be strange? Like, I really did when I looked at this. Like, what things has Peter witnessed? that would lead him to believe that Jesus was going to kill and exclude. I I can't find too many. Jesus had been busy doing the exact opposite, healing people, widening the circle of inclusion. So the question I couldn't get out of my mind was, why does Peter blurt out that Jesus is the expected political king that was known as the Messiah? Now, the truth is, I don't know the answer to the question, but I am going to give one possible answer thought to this that got me thinking. On their way, the scripture says on their way to Caesarea Philippi, they would have passed this city, this village called Gamala, right? It was the home of this guy named Judas the Galilean. You might not remember his name, but when we get to what he's known, best known for, you'll probably remember. He founded the fourth movement in Judaism. So we have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and anybody know the fourth? The Zealots or the Sakari? Right? So there's this fourth thing. And these guys were the guys that, like, they were one of the first, earliest forms of organized assassins. So they carried dagger in their cloaks, and they would, uh, in public places where there were tons of people, they would try to murder Romans or Jewish Roman sympathizers. And their goal was to try to rid Jerusalem of uh, Roman occupation. Right? So these guys chose a violent means, and maybe scholars think that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, the one who betrayed Jesus, may have very well been among that group. Okay? So we have these guys. This guy founds that group, and he came from the city that they would have walked right through on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Right? So this guy, one thing where he's known for is his sons led a massive revolt right after Jesus' lifetime. 
which led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is this guy's sons, really violent group of people. And so I wonder, if Jesus and his disciples are walking by the city of Gamala on their way to Caesarea Philippi, which is the birthplace of this Jewish violent revolution, and so Peter and the other 11 disciples, they start to talk, they wonder, they start asking questions, is this the time that Jesus takes up arms? Is this going to be the moment that Jesus is going to kind of change um, and pursue this more political, more violent, more military-type agenda, right? They have to be asking these questions because something got them thinking. Whatever the answer is, I'm not sure about that, but one thing is really crystal clear, that Peter gets the title right, but he gets the meaning wrong. We know that. We're 100% certain. The question is why I'm not positive about, but that's just one theory that's out there that got me kind of thinking. So he gets the title right, but he does not understand what that means. And so in sharp contrast to this kind of more might makes right, Jesus redefines Messiahship in terms of this perfect and selfless love. Very, very different. He defines Messiahship in terms of a love that would be so radical, so complete, so incomprehensible. At first glance, why was this so hard to understand? Because his trajectory was one of suffering. This was the thing that they could not get out of their minds. He redefines Messiahship to the point where even to the closest people around him, to his best friends and disciples, it was completely unfathomable. They cannot understand it. So to help us better understand why does Peter have such a violent reaction to Jesus' redefinition, we're going to go with a sports analogy. Dodger fans, anybody? Okay, we have a couple, a couple Dodger fans. So we're talking about dumb ideas. So the Dodgers are pretty good. They've added a few pieces um, they have some serious you know, World Series championship aspirations this year after coming so close last year. So here's, here's my idea. Let's just pretend this for a second. The manager, Dave Roberts, gets everybody together. He gathers the team in the clubhouse for this big announcement, and then he proceeds to lay out his outline for the Dodgers winning a World Series. And here's his plan. When he gets the team together, he says, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to bench Clayton Kershaw, Justin Turner, Manny Machado and Matt Kemp. Here they are. <laughs> These guys are done. So when we get to the playoffs, doesn't matter. These guys are done. And then to make it worse, we're going to bring up some minor league guys and they're going to replace these four players. Right? The next one, he says, he says this is going to go from bad to worse. We're going to take position player Kike Hernandez, who's not a pitcher. The only thing he doesn't do is pitch, which is why it's fun. And he's going to have the number one spot in starting playoff rotation. Okay? <laughs> And then finally, they're going to take in the World Series when they get there. If they get there, they're going to spot the other team five runs in the first inning. <laughs> now, how does this plan sound to you? It's completely ridiculous, right? Totally ludicrous. Dumbest idea ever. Dodger players and fans are furious at this. Now that we understand how Peter and the disciples felt, this is how they felt. They look at, they listen to what Jesus said, and they're like, "This is the dumbest idea I ever heard in my life." just as dumb as my idea about pinching these guys, right? This is how shocked the disciples would have been to hear Jesus speak of the Messiah suffering and dying, right? So it's like, no Kershaw, no Turner, no Machado, no Kemp, no thank you. That's what these guys would be thinking. Messiahs can't suffer, they can't die. What would a dead Messiah be by definition? A false one, Okay? So that's what, this is what's going through their mind. And so naturally, like everybody else, Peter's like, I don't want to be on the losing team. Peter wants to be on the winning team. 
Like, he knows one thing. He's absolutely positive. And this is just like, this is so hard. He's absolutely positive of one thing. He thinks Jesus has made the worst mistake ever. And he feels obligated to correct Jesus' mistake. So representing the 12, can you just picture this? He grabs Jesus by the arm. And not to embarrass him in front of other people, he pulls him aside. And he's like, hey, you got this all wrong. All right? Like, oh, this is, it's supposed to make us really uncomfortable, like rebuking the Son of God. This is what Peter is doing. It's supposed to make us cringe a little bit. Now, Peter means it lovingly. He really does think he knows a better way. He thinks his way is better than the way that he just heard. His ideas are better than the idea that he just heard. And Jesus' response to Peter is quick, it's harsh. He calls him Satan. Ah, man, that that hurts a little. Like, we get called some, some names, but I don't know if anyone's been called that name in here. And so this is what happens, right? Satan, the name, the actual word means opposer, it means adversary. And so what's happened with Peter? He's unknowingly, he switched teams. So if we stay with the baseball analogy, Peter's now wearing a Giants jersey. Or like a Team Satan jersey, right? <laughs> He's literally out of line. So we have to think about what this means in discipleship. Like, Mark, can I borrow you for a second? Your, your game, right? Come here. It's easy. All right, you got to stand up. <laughs> so Peter literally is, so stand behind me. This is where Peter's supposed to be, right? Peter is out of line. And he steps out in front in order to leave. And he turns and he faces. And he's going to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? That's what he says. He literally wants to put, he needs to put Peter back in his proper place of where a disciple is supposed to be. Can we give Mark a quick hand? So it's like Peter's gone from this disciple who was following Jesus, and he's moved to a different role. He's moved to an adversary who's standing in Jesus' way. So if you think about his name, the rock, right? There's other, there's literally he is the rock upon which Jesus said he was going to build the church. But right now, he's actually the rock in Jesus' path that trips him up from doing the things that he said he needed to do. So he's gone from a disciple to an adversary by getting out of line and standing in Jesus' way. So Jesus has to literally move him back and put him back in line. And so it's interesting, it's like Peter opposes one of the deepest mysteries of God, that love expressed in self-emptying, this is the way uh, to achieve victory. This is the way to destroy the stronghold of God's adversary, right? This is what Peter cannot yet understand. And so when we ask about why, do we, like, why does this matter to us, this is really a simple one. Because if we have the wrong view of Messiahship, it's going to lead to the wrong view of what it means to be one of Jesus' followers, right? Like, if violent resistance is the answer, if Mike makes right, if Peter is right, then it's like, we've got to think, we've got to get out in front of this thing, right? We've got to lead the charge. We've got to make it happen. We have to hope and pray, this is what Peter's trying to do, that Jesus is actually going to listen to our lead and follow our lead. This is what Peter's trying to do, right? If, if Peter's right, But then we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is calling followers. He's calling people to follow his lead, his way. And it's like the first thing Jesus might say is, if you want to know me, first thing you got to do is you got to get back in line, like Mark did. So the hard part of the teaching is that discipleship means two things that we're not always all that interested in, right? 
It means two things, self-denial and cross-bearing. And this is really the hard part of the teaching. It's like Jesus gathers the crowd back around him in order to say that this message of self-denial, the message of taking up one cross, he's going to say it's not just for me. It's not just for the twelve. He's going to say this is what it means to be a follower, self-denial and cross-bearing. And we look at this and we're like, this is not exactly good news. It's hard to hear. And so everyone who heard these words, they knew exactly what it meant to carry the cross. So today, like, we're exposed to the cross in a couple different ways, jewelry, or as a figure of speech. So I'll go with the figure of speech. This week, I was playing basketball. I tore my meniscus to my right knee, right? And so yesterday, I was working in the yard, and I almost stepped on a snake in my front yard. And I jumped the highest I've jumped since my 20s. <laughs> like, I mean, I'd have, like, done a 360 dunk if I was still playing basketball. Like, I got up off the ground, and by the time I landed, my knee really, really hurt, right? So if I said something like this to you, oh, it's just, uh, you know, this sore knee that I have, it's just the cross that I have to bear. You guys would all understand exactly what. We say that kind of stuff all the time, right? But think about it. To the earliest Christians, this concept would have been completely foreign to them. Like, they would have heard this and they would have said, the cross is the image of terror, of torture. It's a symbol of dehumanization and shame. It was this constant reminder that they were an oppressed people. This is where their mind would have been going, not some minor inconvenience like I have, right? Jesus says that we cannot save our lives by trying to preserve them. It's rather than giving ourselves a way that we discover our truest selves and participate in God's mission in the world. And so we see Jesus walking the path of suffering unto death for his friends, for his enemies, for everyone in between. We've been seeing this week in and week out. And so I thought about trying to finish this with more of a positive instead of a negative. Like, it needs a little bit of heart. And so I was thinking about a positive way, a way of saying what I think Mark wants us to understand is something like this, and we'll see if it works. When we love someone, when we really, really love someone, we will say words like this. We'll say, we give that person our heart. When we give that person our heart, we're offering all of ourselves to the other. And so when we love like this, we also know something that's really true. We're, we're more vulnerable to hurt. We're more vulnerable to pain. When we give ourselves away like that, we're more vulnerable to heartache because true love, we know, will cost us something. And so this is like, when I was thinking about what is Jesus doing, this was kind of the image that came to my mind, right? That Jesus, by redefining Messiahship, is saying something like this to you and I, that he's giving us his heart, and when he gives us his heart, it's going to cost him everything, Right? That Jesus is going to pour out his life for the world. And he says that we too will discover our truest selves when we pour out our lives for others and for God's mission in the world in the sake of the gospel. So when we give Jesus our hearts, we're losing our lives for the kingdom of God. We're mysteriously at the same time, we're somehow finding ourselves when we do that. So denying oneself isn't self-hate, it's more like self-emptying. And taking up the cross isn't tolerating everyday inconveniences and annoyances that we experience in life. It's more about being willing to follow Jesus down a path of giving ourselves away. And so if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we would prefer Peter's way, right? 
is probably closer to what we might wish for ourselves, like someone to rescue us or destroy our enemies, someone that would guarantee our success and our future. But Jesus is redefining Messiahship is about a suffering love. This sounds like the dumbest idea ever. And this is the way that the disciples heard it. But we forgot to talk about one little word in the passage that Peter could never have heard because all he could hear were the words rejection, suffering, and death. Anybody remember what the fourth word was? The Messiah must be rejected, must suffer, must die, and must rise. Will rise, right? This is the one word that Peter had no idea that Jesus said it. It just went right, probably went in one ear and right out the other. And so as we journey with Jesus, may we lovingly stay in the proper place for a disciple, which is behind Jesus. May we willingly give ourselves away to the world. And finally, may Dave Roberts please keep Clayton Kershaw, Andy Machado, Justin Turner, and Matt Turner in the lineup. And keep Kike off the mound, because that really would be the dumbest idea ever.